This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you, as always. I know there's an election coming up, and I know we could spend the entire day talking about it if we wanted to, but I like to mix things up here. I like to keep you all on your toes or on the edge of your seats. I assume a lot of you are sitting. So why don't we talk about Afghanistan instead for a little bit, and why don't we open it up with a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the bug brief. On Friday, I met up with an old friend of mine uh, from within the the community and a friend of of his as well, who is uh, Afghan. And we just had some drinks and, and talked about the state of Afghanistan right now. Uh, You know that we are at war there, but you hear very little about it. Not much in the way of reporting about this situation. Uh, And I thought it was a a worthwhile, it was a worthwhile exchange for me because we were able to sort of map out what I think is going to happen over the course of the next 12 months in that country. Right now they're more or less going to ground. There's some very important, things to understand whenever you talk about Afghanistan. By the way, this is right now. I know the campaigns, neither campaign wants to talk about it because on the Democrat side of things, they have nothing, nothing really to show for a tremendous amount of talk and, and effort uh, on the part of the administration in in Afghanistan to turn things around. Um, We'll, I'll get into some of the details and on the Republican side. Yeah, they can criticize it, but they also don't have, a ready solution. I mean, do you really think that Donald Trump, after 15 years of what's going on in Afghanistan, is going to have some sort of magic answer? Neither of them wants to talk about that. They'd rather continue on with the food fight about who's a a worse human being. Um, But the situation in Afghanistan is uh, bad right now. The reporting that does come out suggests that this is uh, not hopeless, but not far from hopeless either. 
Um, and none of this is surprising to me. And, and from the discussions I had with this friend, uh, I have to say it, it all was right in line with what I, where I would assume we'd be now, given what U.S. policy has been in the region, given the months that I spent in that country seeing mostly strategic level intelligence. Uh, I, had, I was fortunate that I had a tremendous amount of access to information in that country about what was going on. And I like to think of myself as a fast learner, so I got a pretty good 30,000-foot view of what was happening. This was some years ago and also where it was all going. And that's where we are now. Where we are now is essentially not stalemate. We wish it was stalemate. It was just a waiting game. It's just a waiting game with the Taliban. And in fact, if you go back in history, and perhaps this is a, a, a useful way to put our discussion of Afghanistan into the proper context. And there's news headlines today that sort of touch on Afghanistan. You have a military, uh, a, a, a military academy in uh, Quetta where 61 were killed. It was, oh, sorry, police training academy in Quetta where 61 people were killed by uh, jihadists. It's been claimed by the Islamic State, by the way, jihadists with, uh, mich- with uh, automatic weapons and uh, suicide vests on went into a a place where cadets were sleeping. They weren't armed. They weren't allowed to be armed during their training or to keep weapons with them at this point of their training. So they were just sitting ducks, and 61 of them were killed. And that's just the last 24 hours. Um, I bring it up because when we're talking about Afghanistan, we really have to talk about Pakistan at the same time. Thinking of them as separate countries, or at least thinking of the Pashtun areas of these two places as separate countries is right off the bat, a philosophical or a um, analytic mistake. So I was speaking, going back into history for a second here. uh, There have been, you've you've heard things before, right? Graveyard of empires. I don't think, this is one of these phrases that became well known and and my understanding is, I don't think Kipling wrote it. Uh, Sometimes people attribute it to Rudyard Kipling who wrote Kim, which I do recommend to you. as a, It's a very good novel. with uh, it's, it's an easy read, and it gives you some context for the sort of great game between Russia and Great Britain as it played out in the Pashtun areas or in, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, essentially, uh, and, and parts of India, modern India. So uh, you look at this, and people talk about the graveyard of empires, and there have been some books written on this as well. Mike Scheuer wrote Imperial Hubris, the, I think the best book he has written, where he essentially said, look at this country and you'll understand that we're not going to get out of it what we think we are, or we're not going to be able to win the way we think we should. It is a country that is largely uh, victim to, I was going to say subject to, but victim to is probably a better description of it. It's geography and it's demography. Um, it's, there's a sort of determinism because of those Two things on the geographical side. You first, of course, you have the terrain. This matters in every respect. It, it matters because it's a rugged, inhospitable place in many areas. You have the Hindu Kush mountains come down, sort of like a spine, into the center of the country and extend out uh, its their, their fingers. And then you have the separation that occurs between the various tribal groups there. You have not just the fighting season, but really a travel season because the mountain passes get packed with snow and it just becomes too cold, too difficult to travel from one place to another. So because of the geography, you have a very limited infrastructure. Even still to this day, 
you've got about 20% of the country can read and about 20 to 30% of the country has access to electricity, maybe 20, 25%, something like that. So a vast majority of Afghans, Afghanis, by the way, are the currency. People will say Afghani, but that's not technically correct. You want to say Afghan. Um, Afghans are, uh, are a vast majority of them are illiterate and do not have access to electricity and uh, and also uh, less than half of them have, have access to running water. So that's partially a function of the geography of this place. And the actual terrain features play a very large role in both the mentality of the people who live there as well as their sort of just day-to-day way of life and what they are used to. It is impassable in winter in many areas. It's bitterly cold. There are tremendous elevations that you'd have to, uh, you'd have to scale in order to get into certain, uh, get across from one sort of valley into another. And this is how you hear these stories even still. Once in a while, there'll be some report about how here we are 15 years into the war and there'll be some village that doesn't even know that Af- you know, Afghanistan's at war or something. I even heard reports early on in the war of some Afghan villages who assumed that the helicopters that they were seeing or the, some of the, the troops that were being ferried about must have been a continuation of the Soviet-Afghan war, which ended in 1989. That's how remote some of these areas are, even to this day. And as I mentioned, we talked about Haiti. It's also one of the poorest countries in the world. The Graveyard of Empires line, which I still need to track down where exactly it comes from, it's sort of appeared in writing in the early 2000s. And like I said, I think it's attributed to Kipling, but not actually something that Kipling ever wrote, but I'll check on that. Refers to many centuries uh, where there were invasions of this country that were unsuccessful in the sense that Afghanistan was never really controlled for very long by any of these outside powers. And in a lot of cases, they were able to expel invading forces. Um, You have Alexander the Great making his foray into Afghanistan in 330 BC. He gets hit by an arrow and barely makes it back to the Indus River. Um, And you have Genghis Khan at the absolute, or the, the Khanate, I should say, at the absolute height of its power, having to make deals with the Afghans because they didn't want to have to deal with these tribesmen who carry these sort of long curved knives and have a, a culture of, of fighting and where honor is more important than death. Of course, their conception of honor and ours would be, that would be an interesting conversation in and of itself. You have three Anglo-Afghan wars, three times the Brits were involved in military operations in Afghanistan. And if you go back and read some of the, I, I have a collection, uh, it's actually on my Kindle, a, a collection of sort of first-person reports from one of the Anglo-Afghan wars. And it's so many of the same things you see playing out today, right? Try, uh, the warlords who are double-dealing, who are playing both sides. The tribalism of the country as the single sort of most important political characteristic, despite their efforts to set up some kind of a central government that can control things. Uh, and the different British uh, incursions into Afghanistan uh, 1839 to 1843, 1878 to 1880, and 1919, just 1919, that was a short one, uh, all had to do with what was called the Great Game. The Russians, there were, there were fears that the Russians could use Afghanistan as a corridor for the destabilization and invasion of British-controlled India. Um, and whoever, contr- whoever controlled 
you can sort of take this back to the geopolitical theorists and people like Mackinder, whoever controls sort of the world island in South Asia and Eurasia is a huge part of it, will control the world. A Great Game is uh, also part of the, it's really the backdrop for Kipling's Kim. And this is where you have the Russians and the Brits colliding with the Afghans as the proxy uh, in the middle. Oh, I also meant, I mentioned geography in the context of terrain, but it's also important to keep in mind, and this has just as much impact today on what's going on there. Um, and I'll give you the sort of assessment of this, both this friend of mine who served in Afghanistan in the military and, and his friend who is a, uh, an Afghan, uh, grew up there, is a Pashtun, and still has many contacts there and family there, and was a, uh, an interpreter and was assisting in the U.S. war effort there. So really, really knows in a very personal way uh, what it is to fight the Taliban and what's going on there. And the uh, situational geography, though, is essential to understand as well. You have uh, Iran and Pakistan are the two major neighbors that border Afghanistan. You also have uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. But they're not really, uh, they're not as important. Uh, they don't, they're not able to have quite the same degree of, of influence. Um, Iran and Pakistan, obviously, from a military perspective, have uh, much larger forces, much greater resources at their disposal to use to try to create some sort of strategic depth for themselves in Afghanistan. And in fact, India and, and Pakistan are always trying to outdo one another to establish some degree of leverage in Afghanistan to use against the other. And the Iranians have, of course, a linguistic and cultural tie with some of the Afghans. The Iranians, uh, who Dari, which is a, really just an Afghan version of uh, Persian, or I'm sorry, or Farsi. Well, same thing. Um, so there's a sort of ethnic and ideological, or I should say, a, pardon me, a linguistic tie between some Afghans, the Dari-speaking uh, Afghans, mostly in the north and west, and then the Pashtuns, who tribally speaking, have uh, kinship with their fellow Pashtuns over the, the Duran line created by the British, which is the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, that line doesn't really exist all that much, particularly if you're a Pashtun. So the situational geography matters a lot, too, because we've always been trying to make a better Afghanistan, and we're doing it while the neighbors, who are always there and are never leaving, we can leave, we can go back, we can try to exert whatever influence we can from a, from a distance. Um, as the world's global power, we obviously do have uh, some serious leverage to bring to bear there. But the guys who are next door and who speak the same language and have been involved in that country for centuries, they understand and they're playing a long game too. So Iran and Pakistan uh, make the whole thing much more complicated for us. In the case of Pakistan, they're, just, they're the reason why we can't win the Afghan war. They're the reason why we will never win this war. If winning means the creation of a stable state no longer threatened by its neighbors and no longer with the no longer with a realistic possibility of a government overthrow by the Taliban, we're not going to do it. It's not possible right now. I don't know if it ever will be, but certainly with the strategy we have in place, it's not. I'll get into sort of more of the details of that now. I think it's fascinating. I think the media is uh, largely asleep at the wheel on this one, or, or at least pretending to be. They don't want to talk about it much. Neither side wants to recognize that we have a failed strategy in Afghanistan that 
the moment we were to actually leave, you would see major cities falling. I'll even tell you which cities I think are likely to fall in the next 12 to 18 months and what lessons we can take from all this as well. Obama administration, of course, thinks that they've got this thing all figured out. They do not. Sponsor this half hour is Yankee Hill Machine. I love these guys. They love guns. You should check them out. YHM.net. You go online, you'll see they've got a fantastic selection of ARs. They make their own suppressors. Their suppressors are top of the line. If you haven't ever checked one out, by the way, suppressors are awesome. I have fired Yankee Hill Machine's guns. I have used their suppressors, and the stuff they have is fantastic. They're a family-owned company. It's all done right here in the U.S. of A. They're up in Massachusetts. They've got this cool little factory up there where they make the guns, and they have a fantastic selection. I really think you should check them out. And these are guys who really like guns. The owners are Chris and Kevin Graham. They believe this is a family tradition, and they produce some of the finest rifles and sound suppressors on the market. So for the total line of YHM products, all you have to do is go to YHM.net. Again, YHM.net, Yankee Hill Machine. Doing it all right here in the U.S. of A. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. So where do I think all this is going? Why am I talking about Afghanistan now? Well, one, uh, other people are not talking about it, and I think that that's a largely political decision. Uh, because the numbers are bad. Uh, when you look at, the, for those who are covering this, uh, you, for example, would be told that over a quarter of the country's districts, 90 out of about, a four, about 400, are con- completely controlled by the Taliban. That we have seen a repeat of what happened uh, during the Soviet-Afghan era towards the end, when, sure, the major cities, you can defend the major cities. You can mass enough military personnel and resources in major cities to prevent them from being overrun, or at least overrun and, and held by Taliban and other sort of jihadist enemies. But the countryside belongs to the Taliban in a lot of places, in at least the sort of Pashtun-majority areas of the country. And you look at uh, Lashkargah and Helmand City, Helmand City down in Helmand Province, uh, look at Kandahar, and... The countryside is controlled by the Taliban. The fighting season is going away now, going away right now. So you won't uh, you won't hear much about any major military exchanges or anything. But come the next fighting season, for the next administration, 
there's a very real chance you could see Hellman City fall to the Taliban, which would be a shock, I think, to a lot of people because we haven't been hearing much about this. But how do you have over uh, almost a quarter of the country, and that's by our assessments, under the control of the Taliban? Okay, a, a, a quarter of the country would be like if we had about 12 U.S. states that, you know, we're just in the in the hands of the enemy. But it's only 12 states. We got the rest of them. Um, you can imagine what that means for those other states in terms of their security and whether they're going to be cutting deals with the people that say they're not going anywhere, they're going to stay forever, or the people who have political considerations, have other things they need to do. Um, a New York Times reporter uh, wrote a piece on October 1st called 15 Years in the Afghan Crucible. She's been reporting on Afghanistan for for 15 years, um, or for the last 15 years, rather. She's been reporting on it for longer than that. And she says tens of thousands of Taliban are on the offensive in the countryside. They're threatening to overrun several provincial towns, and they're staging huge bombings in the capital. There's a real danger the Afghan army could collapse next year if the fighting and casualties remains as intense. This whole thing is ready to go down the tubes, and our entire effort there would seem largely wasted. And yet, how much time have you heard the candidates spend on this? How much is the media talking about it? In part because they just want to focus on other things, but also I think there's a recognition, there's sort of a thought out there that no one even wants to whisper, which is, what are we really going to do? Are we just going to stay there forever and hold this place together, or are we just leave and watch it burn? Those seem to be the choices, based on the people that I know who understand this country well, and based on what I learned when I was there myself, back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show, on the Blaze Radio Network. When people talk about the culture of political correctness and how they can't take it anymore, it's often, I think, a, a good idea to put a little meat on the bones to give them or to, to give a sense of, of what we're really talking about here when we discuss the culture of political correctness, um, which, by the way, has gotten worse. Um, and this is one of the things about the Trump campaign. I'm not even sure that he's a particularly good messenger on this issue other than the fact that he really upsets people who are used to constantly being able to say you're not you can't upset me that does make me happy I, I will I will tell you this I do get some joy out of watching someone on a national stage who just refuses to kowtow refuses to bend the knee to the outrage machine all the time I, I don't even know how it could go and, and work at a sort of normal standard place anymore I mean it would have to be a job where I don't know, I'm like making cortados, which is apparently a macchiato with slightly uh, finer foam on it or something like that. I'm not exactly sure what the distinction is between a cortado and a macchiato. Or maybe I know and I'm just pretending not to know because I don't want you all to think I'm a bunch of latte drinker over here. Uh, I'll never forget that. Never forget that, uh, that little comment from that instructor at the farm. That was a good time. Not bad for a latte drinker. Uh, so... Where was I? 
Oh, yeah. I, I like to talk about these examples. I mean, I'm somebody who got caught up in the political correctness machinery at my own college at Amherst. I told you about it. I was going to throw the south of the border party. And I was just involved. But they assumed because I was, quote, uh, well, I'm not, I wasn't really a quote. They just assumed because I was like the outspoken preppy guy in the in the dorm who liked to throw parties and was always, you know, trying to get all the ladies from Smith and Holyoke to show up that like this was my idea. I mean, it was partially my idea, but I wasn't in charge of the flyer that was sent out that was so offensive. But I have tried to find this. I will find it one day. I'm sure it's like stuck in some shoebox in the back of my closet, uh, along with, you know, other sort of knickknacks and memorabilia and such. I, if I ever find it, I will I will try to share it with you guys under the proviso that it's like evidence. I'm not endorsing because, you know, it did show a, what is supposed to be a I didn't I didn't make the flyer. I mean, it was it was a, a woman of um, South Asian descent, actually, who drew it. Thank heaven. So she couldn't be she couldn't be held fully accountable because she wasn't a, a, a white male. Um I, if I ever find the flyer, though, I will uh, I'll show it to you guys. I'll like put it up on Facebook or something. But it shows a, a person with a large mustache and a sombrero and holding two bottles of tequila. And it, it was not the most it was not the most sensitive party invitation I've ever seen thrown out. I, I will admit, I don't think it was worthy of the apocalypse, though, which is what it turned into. This was a long time ago. But even since then, like, there we actually... And I'm telling you that story so we can juxtapose it with another story that I'm about to tell you, and then translate that into, at least Trump will anger all of these people. Maybe maybe it's... You think he's terrible on a bunch of things, and he's a phony and a fraud, and he's vulgar, and, and I get all that. Fine. One, he's not Hillary, and two, at least he will upset all of these people. And they need to be upset. It's actually the only way to deal with them. We, we can't you cannot placate this PC mania that exists now. And, you know, political correctness, I don't even really like that term. It's actually just a it's actually just a sort of authoritarian uh, leftist orthodoxy. I mean, I prefer that or a really a, a leftist fascism you know, because that's that's really or a leftist totalitarianism. That's what this is. Political correctness makes it sound like, oh, well, you know, what's fashionable today and how can we be correct politically? It doesn't have quite the the bite as a term as I would like it to. It doesn't sound like you have people that are threatening your livelihood, that are threatening uh, your reputation, in some cases even threatening your freedom based upon ideas or expressions of ideas that you have that they find to be uh, hurtful unacceptable, and whatever the case may be. So back when I was in college, if you had somebody send out an invitation for a Mexican-themed party with a guy in a sombrero, a mustache, and a couple of bottles of tequila in his hands, you were going to you, you get in big trouble. They threatened to, and keep in mind, this was on a campus where underage drinking was the norm, right? Everybody was drinking underage all the time. I mean, we were just rolling kegs around left and right. I mean, it was like a big joke with the campus police. They would sort of, you know... It, it, it couldn't be too blatantly in front of them, so we'd wait for one of them. We'd wait for the camp, the one campus police car to sort of drive by, and then we'd you know roll the keg out of the back of somebody's Subaru or whatever, and you know set it up in the basement. I mean, this is you know this is what people are now paying fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to have their kids do at the, these supposedly elite institutions. Anyway, uh, the, the, so 
that was that was oh we we were told that if we threw this party without without making concessions the concessions were we couldn't actually have it be themed in any way tied to Mexico it was a Cinco de Mayo party obviously so we couldn't have it in any way tied to Cinco de Mayo anymore it just had to be a party so that was you know and we we couldn't even like have a focus on tequila based drinks I mean they were they were really it was it was they were a bunch of fascists okay bunch of leftist fascists but at least we you know the, the invitation wasn't great I'm not going to lie to you. It was, it was pretty like, ooh, wow. I mean, if you did that, if you did it today on most college campuses, I think you'd be expelled. I didn't remember. I had nothing to do with the invitation. I wasn't part of invitation committee. I was just part of, like, uniting the crews across campus and across the Pioneer Valley to make sure that we threw the most ruckus, unforgettable party ever. Um, but somebody else was put in charge of invitations, and they went out. And I, will ne- I always remember a couple of girls who were seniors, actually. I was a freshman. Uh, I knew some senior girls and they saw me outside the student center and they came running out and it, it, I thought somebody had died. I mean, they looked at me like something, you know, horrific had happened and, and I was responsible for it. You know, how could you? It's like, what are you talking about? What, what, what do you mean? I'm just trying to throw a party. Let everybody get drunk. We play some loud, bad music through someone's speaker in like a basement of a dorm. Uh, anyway, that was then. Let me give you the now. And maybe this is a way of getting at why people like me are willing to say, you know what? There is nothing you can tell me about Trump that I think at this point I have. Well, maybe I haven't heard everything about Trump, but I mean, I I get it. I I hear it all. I understand all of the concerns uh, and I don't pretend that they're not valid and real or I don't dismiss them. Um, That all said, I do kind of just want. These kinds of people, like I'm about to read you from an incident here, these kinds of people, I want them to lose. I want them to lose. And maybe that's not the most mature way to think about the future of the republic. Maybe maybe this is not how I should be you know, engaging in my the franchise of democracy. Whatever, I don't know. Think of some fancy words and insert them into this monologue here. Uh, I'm not going to use odious because it's, I was told that I overused that one last week. Perhaps nefarious would be better, or insidious. I want these people to lose. People like this. This is this was just sent to me. I, I get sent cool stuff from from my peeps, from my uh, my secret conservatives. This comes from Fordham University. I'm, I want to read this to you. Okay, this comes from the president. The pre. I think is it the president of Fordham. Yeah, I think it's the president of Fordham University. All right. So Fordham's a major university here. Yeah, it is the office of the president. Major university here in New York City. Has an undergrad, law school, a bunch of other schools. Very good school, Jesuit school. Although Jesuit schools these days are just slightly less, uh, in terms of their real ethos and and the way that they operate day-to-day on campus, in places like Georgetown and Fordham, they're only slightly less uh, statist and um, atheistic and commie than their other sort of elite brethren, right? So I can't I can't speak to all the Jesuit school in the country. I'm sure some of them still maintain a real Jesuit feel. But Georgetown, I know the deal there. Uh, Fordham, you know, name a bunch of these places that are on the East Coast. And trust me, you know, they're all about transgender rights for, you know, freshmen in college, too, or whatever. I mean, not that everything gets transgender people, you know, whatever. Honestly, you do you. It's just. Don't make me say I love it if I, you know, if I don't have to. And don't make me say that I have to or don't make me pay for it and leave me alone. You know what I mean? You do you. Whatever. So, but of course, that's never what you realize is that's never enough. That tolerance very quickly turns into celebration. 
And if you fail to – oh, tolerance turns into celebration and celebration turns into direct support. Uh, this is the sort of leftist model. It's never like, hey, you can do your thing. I'll do my thing. It's, well, now that you've let me do my thing, I want you to tell me how great my thing is. And once they get you to do that, then it's, well, now that you say that this is so great, I kind of want you to pay for this. And actually, I want to use the state to make you say this is great and to make you pay for it. And therefore, you're complicit in it. And then how can you not like it? Because you're a part of it. And then you turn around and you say, wow, I have been co-opted. Not cool. That's how it works. All right, to my story here that I, I want to share with all of you. Notice how we haven't even done like a single worthless Trump headline yet today. I just want to give myself a moment of applause, given how close we are to the election, that it's not just Trump saying the polls are rigged. I mean, we're going to have to go there, guys, in a little bit. But for now, I got something else here. This is hot off, hot off the presses from Florida University, the culture of political correctness, how it can take root, how crazy it has become. Uh, I want to read you this whole – it's not a very long letter. But I want to read this to you. And keep in mind, this is now what is expected, I'm sure, in most of your offices. Maybe if you like run your own small business or something, no. But if you work for any sort of major corporation, certainly if you work for the government, certainly if you work in academia or on campus anywhere, uh, you're a grad student, undergrad student, more and more you're finding this stuff is also the case in high schools and even grammar schools. I mean, they're trying to indoctrinate them young now. Um, here's what this, this letter says. Uh, we, we have, how many days are we from Halloween? Like five, six days? Here's what, the, here's what it says. Dear members of the Fordham family, the university is investigating what appears to be an ill-conceived Halloween decoration in the window of an international student's room. The decoration is a faux corpse in white material and hung in the window. The, corpse, uh, the corpse's face... The only part of its body visible is a typical gruesome Halloween mask, which could appear darkened in complexion from three stories below. And I'm assuming at night, by the way, I just added that part in. But from three stories below, maybe this has a maybe this Halloween mask has a darkened complexion. By the way, it does not. They have a photo of it. It's, it's a white face. It's a Caucasian person. It's also a Halloween mask covered in blood. I mean, it's like it's clearly anyway. But I digress. Let me get back to this letter. As you can see from the attached embedded image, however, if the mask can be said to represent any race, it would be Caucasian. Whew. Oh, okay, good. So we were really worried that there was a hanging mask, bloodied face situation that was non-Caucasian. Everybody can chill because it's actually a Caucasian. Let that sink in for a second. Just, just let that bounce around for a minute. Oh, okay. So since it's a Caucasian mask that's all bloodied and terrible, totes cool. Totes cool. NBD. No big deal. It goes on in this letter. The NYPD investigated the incident. They called the cops over this. Investigated the incident and determined that no hate crime had occurred. You don't say. Our own Department of Public Safety, in cooperation with staff from the Office of Student Affairs, is still investigating. At the conclusion of their investigation, the student who created and hung the effigy may face disciplinary proceedings. For what? It's a Halloween mask. It's Halloween. It's a, it's a, it's a, like, a typical, like, my eye has been gouged out, my face is all cut up, like, Halloween mask. And it's a white dude. But I digress. No, I don't digress. Let's get back into this. 
I want to emphasize that even if no insult was intended by the student who placed the display in her window, I appreciate that the hurt felt by people of color is genuine and has deep roots in our nation's history. Fordham will also take whatever measures are deemed necessary to to try to prevent further incidents of this sort. With this in mind, I ask you to be sensitive to other members of the campus community and try to have compassion and understanding for others' anger. No, there's only one anger that they want to, you know, the minority students' anger is the one that they're talking about here. Uh, Some, clearly a minority student must have seen this and decided that that without even knowing that this somehow represented a, a, a lynching scene or something. Not, not, not thinking for a second, wait, it's Halloween week. Maybe this is like a Halloween decoration in somebody's window. This isn't a question of people being oversent. People have lost their minds. They are crazy. They are infantile. And they are being constantly, constantly catered to by these leftist cowards. That's political correctness for you now. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Should be kept in mind, team, that it was over Halloween costumes that that huge kerfuffle happened last year. Is that the second time I said kerfuffle today? I think so. Uh, that that, that uh, big hullabaloo happened last year. Look at that. Hullabaloo, everybody. On the fly. At Yale University, where the professor wrote some email saying, like, hey, guys, little kids dressed up as, like, Pocahontas is not disrespectful. Like, basically, just chill. And then you had students actually screaming in the faces of professors and cursing at them. And instead of kicking those little brats off campus uh, and telling them, go find somewhere else to go to school, this is at Yale University, the, the university, the most powerful people in the university were all just bowing down to them. And everybody was, oh, you know, we don't want to upset you. Um, this, it, started on the, it starts on the campuses, and now it's infiltrated through all the rest of day-to-day life. Um, and it's the same mantra, really, and the same attitude that the White House has and that much of our federal government has now, too. So that's the way it is, everybody. It's pretty disturbing stuff. 888-900-3393. What do you think about un-PC Halloween costumes? That and more coming up. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back into the Freedom Hut. That alarm means we're about to be en fuego because we're joined by Matt Cottonetti. He is the editor in chief of the Washington Free Beacon. You can read his latest on freebeacon.com. Matt, always great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. 
Apologies for the uh, emergency vehicles in the background. They're just prepared for whatever fire starting you may do, my friend. So the crisis of the conservative intellectual, um, how populism displaced conservatism in the Republican Party. This is a column that you've uh, you've written on freebeacon.com. I don't I mean, you give a great history here of the sort of uh, of the conservative movement in the country and the different factions. If, if we could, I, I would recommend everybody to read it because you go into real detail and you talk about uh, William Buckley, uh, William F. Buckley on firing line and, and the sort of level of discourse with presidential candidates there. Obviously, people should juxtapose that to what we see going on now. But I want to ask you is this. Don't people have a point? Forget about Trumpism for a second. Don't people have a point when they say that there seems to be too much distance between the intellectual elites of the Republican Party and the rank and file of the Republican Party? I don't mean distance in terms of intelligence. I mean distance as in there's not a familiarity, not a friendliness, not a connection. I think there's always been a tension. And one of the um, things I try to do in my piece that you mentioned on on freebeacon.com is kind of trace the history of that tension. And uh, we definitely see uh, the tension inflamed right now over the issue of Donald Trump and um, support for him. And uh, I think without a doubt what, what the intellectual conservatives have found um, in the, over the last year is that they are very few in number when it comes uh, to the broader conservative movement, uh, firstly, first, and then the Republican Party, uh, secondly. And so this is a, a moment uh, for uh, reevaluation for a lot of them. And in some cases, uh, not mine, but in, in other cases, uh, a break. Uh, a real break of people who had been associated with the Republican Party and the conservative movement now uh, disassociating themselves from it. Now, I want to ask you if if you think that that this is a a fair way to put it or at least perhaps one way to to contextualize some of this. It has always seemed to me that one of the things that the the Democratic Party does well is that membership is a very low bar. I don't I don't I don't just mean. Uh, obviously registering and voting Democrat, right? Because that, that is what it is. But if you want to be a Democrat, all you really have to know, uh, all you really have to subscribe to is government overall is good. It solves problem. The government should be helping me with my problems. And nice people vote Democrat, right? It, it's a very, it is not expected that you understand, I mean, culturally within the Democratic Party, it's not expected that you understand the undergirding philosophy of the DNC and and the various platforms and everything else. And I feel like they don't – I think there's some degree of uh, patronizing that goes on here as a result of that as well. But at least they always make it very clear. If you want to be a Democrat, all you have to think is government is good, big government's your friend, and everything's fine. I mean, it's sort of like people talk about uh, one of the reasons why Islam spread so quickly other than – put aside the conquest part of it is, you know, the five pillars. You do that, you're pretty much, you know, you you do that, you're pretty much in the tent. Republicans seem to have this separation, right? There seems to be, well, they're the people that understand, the people that have read The Road to Serfdom and the people who haven't. And they don't do as good a job in my mind, and I'm wondering if you think this is factored into this year, even apart from Trump, of making everybody feel like, well, you don't have to necessarily be somebody who's deeply invested in political philosophy to understand the basic tenets of conservatism and be a conservative. Right. I think I think the Democrats are very transactional, basically, because they don't have any conceptual issue with the welfare state, with the federal government. 
And so, like you say, if it, they're, they're not really discussing the size of government or whether government should be involved in, in private life or in civic life. But they're discussing different things. Uh, what is How's government going to help me? And so the coalition is very – they understand it in, the, in those terms. You know, Think about one of the things we learned from the WikiLeaks uh, hack of John Podesta's emails is when he put all of the various uh, – possible vice presidential nominees for Hillary Clinton into the fruit groups, the food groups, they called them. And there was one group for Latinos. There was one group of women. There was one group of African-Americans. And then there was Bernie Sanders all by his lonesome. So this is the way that Democrats kind of understand the world and liberals do. Uh, You're members of a group. We all agree on the basic premise that the government is there to, quote, unquote, help you. And we're going to basically squabble uh, over how best to do that. Uh, Republicans understand themselves differently. The Republican Party is not unified around the question of the welfare state. You have debates between Republicans for decades about whether what how big the federal government should be. The Republican Party is not unified over foreign policy. It's not unified over uh, the role of religion in public life, and those tensions are are much more um, apparent uh, to this this cycle. So uh, I think that's the fundamental difference between the two parties is uh, the, the Democrats are unified around this idea that the welfare state is here, it's expanding, and it's going to continue to expand to help new groups. What, as an aside, Democrats are not unified, though, on the question of the market and what role does the market play. And we saw that in the Democratic primary where Hillary Clinton, believe it or not, defended the market and small business against uh, what she called Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism. Bernie's much less free market than she is, amazingly. So the Republicans, on the other hand, they don't know what they think about the welfare state. They don't know what they think about religion. They don't know what they think about foreign policy. And as a result, you have uh, just uh, kind of this, this ongoing civil war. Now, on that point about the transactional nature of the Democratic Party, I think that's that's essential. You really not only can one not understand what one can't even you know begin to uh, begin to sort of wrap one's head around the Democratic Party without the transactional nature of it, right? Because you have people from very disparate uh, backgrounds in, in every conceivable sense, falling under the sort of the broad uh, rubric of being of being a Democrat, but they all think they're going to get something, right? If the Democrats are in power, they will get X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be, and we could sit here and illustrate what all those are, but people know. Okay, what? Uh, and this is one of the things that came up, I think, during Trump's rise that there were some conservatives of of sort of uh, of goodwill and and are trying to be fair minded about the whole situation, and they would say. Well, let's be honest. What do the sort of uh, Eastern elite Republicans uh, who are sort of the you know, intellectual class of the Republican Party and you know, people who live in D.C. and New York who write for places and, you know, out in other places, too, I know. But just generally speaking, uh, what do they offer a guy who is uh, works in the Rust Belt, who's you know got a wife and two kids and uh, only has a high school degree? And feels like his, you know, the job is just going to get outsourced. It's a question of when. Healthcare costs are going up. He can't keep up. He's doing his job. He's doing his part. And Republicans, it seems perhaps to him, are just always giving a lecture on how you know we, we need to return to like the you know an even more free market, and maybe we could give him some lectures on Edmund Burke to keep him warm and safe at night. I mean that, I, I, and I don't think that's. I mean that's obviously a caricature, but I don't think it's completely. Uh, it's uh, not based in any reality whatsoever. I I do think there's a disconnect. 
Well, I wish more Republican politicians would give lectures on Edmund Burke because <laughs> okay, true. But... I uh, I study Edmund Burke and I don't see any Republican politicians uh, talking about him. Um, what I do see, though, is in fact some of the conservative intellectuals are the ones that I would call intellectuals. And when I use the term intellectuals, I don't mean anyone who lives in New York or Washington. I don't even mean most journalists. I mean people who put out serious books uh, and that like that articulate ideas that force even the left to respond to. And so, really, I only think they're about two or three conservative intellectuals alive today. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, but if you give me, if to, to tell you, to just to take your premise, though, the, one, the, the youngest one is Yuval Levin, who is the editor of National Affairs Magazine and the author of two books, um, actually four books, but two major um, books. And he's done the most um, of anyone in order to address precisely the family that, that you um, outlined there and what new policies uh, Republicans should adopt uh, to make uh, make an appeal to voters like that. His problem is the Republican Party isn't isn't responding at all. In fact, there are only two Republican senators, Mike Lee of Utah and Ben Sass of Nebraska, who have any who have picked up on some of the ideas he's putting forth. So um, there is a third group here, right? So you have you have the conservative intellectuals, like I say, a small group. Um, and then you have the, the, the kind of who I call the populists, and these tend to be more activists in the conservative movement. Um, and then you do have the they're jockeying for for favor uh, for the for the Republican politicians. And the Republican politicians, I think, uh, either are have gone in a populist direction, or on the other hand, they still think that we're living in the 1980s. And so they've exactly they don't they have not there is a divide they haven't crossed that divide between um, the the grassroots of the of of the party or of the conservative movement it's a major dilemma and I I don't know if, what the answers are yeah I was gonna I'm sorry, so I was gonna ask you how how does this begin to get fixed uh, I, I think there'll be I mean I, I know that there there's sort of the the door number one door number two situation here if Trump wins Trump loses uh, let's just take for the sake of our discussion now. Trump loses. What are the what are the lessons that should be learned? Not necessarily that will be, but what are the lessons that should be learned from a Trump loss for the for the GOP establishment? Let's say, forget about the three the three people that are writing worthy books. Fair enough. For the GOP machine, such as it is, what are the lessons that should be taken so that we don't just become you know a, a de facto one party state with you know Hillary and the Democrats running it for the next twenty years? Well, I do think the Republican establishment, Republican uh, politicians, and even uh, people who work in, with ideas or uh, write articles uh, for a living, uh, should be uh, more open to the fact that uh, this country is a divided country, and they should study and uh, to name a conservative, another conservative intellectual, Charles Murray, who more than anyone since his 2012 book coming apart has described exactly this segment. We have had Charles Murray on the show. In fact, yeah. go ahead, sir. And and Murray, of course, has been describing for years the segmentation of the population and how there are a lot of people who are just left behind because of changes in the economy and changes in credentialing. So I, I do think the Republican Party needs to address these, this issue, and they have not done a very good job of it. I also think populists need to learn some lessons here uh, in the case of a Trump loss, and even if, in the case of a Trump win, because the populist mode of rhetoric and the populist uh, kind of um, 
temperament has alienated huge numbers of people from the Republican nominee and from the Republican Party more largely. And so it's not just Repu- it's not just Paul Ryan who has to learn things from the 2016 election, but it's also the supporters of Donald Trump, even if somehow he pulls off a win. And that is that I say this because when you just run the models, the political science models, or the or the generic Hillary versus a generic Republican, uh, those models show that the Republicans should be winning handily. And the reason they're not winning handily is, I think, the nominee, but also the style of politics he's represented. It's just turned off more, many, many people. So, but you're talking about lessons that aren't necessarily. Um, ideological lessons or, or, or changes in the way the party re- these, these are sort of Trump specific lessons this is like don't have a guy who says things that upset a lot of people and has a history of being a bit crass with women right I mean, th- th- those are specific well, to Trump just, are there broader lessons about one, populism no it's not just one guy I mean it, because the, one of the things I talk about in, in the piece on freebeacon.com is Trump is the latest iter- iteration or incarnation of a, of a movement of populist politics uh, that is has always been part of American life and has been part of the American right now for about 50 years. And um, and this has helped the, the American right and the Republican Party in, in many instances, uh, the balance between conservatism and populism. But I think over the last eight years, and now in Trump, um, just kind of gratuitously exposes how it could be a it's bringing diminishing returns, uh, certainly for the Republican Party. And I also think for the in those three intellectual conservatives we mentioned, you know, they're um, they're completely adrift now because no one is paying attention to them. And uh, they have very little influence, even under even in the traditional institution that they've aligned with, which was the Republican Party. What do you think about the comparisons or not even comparisons, really? People will say that Trump is essentially the latest iteration of uh, Pat Buchanan or Buchananism, whether one agrees with his positions on trade and immigration and such or not, Buchanan is a, in his own way an intellectual. I feel like that's that's kind of an unfair comparison in some ways, but also I can see how the policies do line up a bit. Yeah, right. No, Buchanan is an intellectual. He writes books. He he stands for an idea. Uh, whether he's a conservative, though, that's another. That's a, that that'd be a difference. And um, I think I'm not even sure he would describe himself as a conservative. Um, so is he a populist? Yeah. Uh, is he a reactionary? Yeah. Um, and it, there's clearly a, a overlap between the principles that Pat Buchanan has stood for for the past 25 years and what Donald Trump has stood for over the course of this election, anti-immigration, anti-trade, and anti-intervention overseas. So there's a clear overlap there, and Buchanan has emerged as one of his Donald Trump's strongest supporters. And do I think, think even that, Donald Trump name-checked Buchanan after the second debate at a rally. So. Yeah. Do you think that Trumpism, uh, in, in what it has become, uh, just last one for you, Matt, and then, then we'll let you uh, go back to everything else you got going on, but do, do you think that Trumpism was an inevitable confrontation for the GOP, or actually was this a fluke because of the huge field and just a few crazy factors all coming together this year? I think, it, I think it's been inevitable for some time, because I think what you saw, um, whether it was Buchanan 25 years ago, or whether it was Sarah Palin eight years ago, and the reaction to Sarah Palin and what she represented when she was the vice presidential nominee, that is, that's exactly the reaction that Donald Trump produced seismically in the Republican Party when he ran for president. 
And of course, who is one of the first Republicans to come behind Donald Trump? It was Sarah Palin. So uh, you saw you saw Buchanan, you saw it in the anti-immigration um, protests against the amnesty bill during Bush's presidency. You saw it with Palin. You saw it with, to some extent with the Tea Party, which was which was very populist. And so it was just a matter of time before you you had a moment of rupture. And I think that's what Donald Trump represented. He did it. Uh, he made the rupture worse. Uh, because people's opinions of him are so polarized and so visceral. You either love him or you hate him. And indeed, he's the question of the 2016 election. It's not about Hillary Clinton. It's about whether Donald Trump should be president or not. And if, uh, if enough people think he should be, uh, then, he'll, then he'll win. All right. Matt Continetti is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He has a piece on freebeacon.com up right now. You'll definitely want to check out Crisis of the Conservative Intellectual, How Populism Displaced Conservatism in the Republican Party. Matt, always great to have you, sir. Thank you for calling in. Thank you, Buck. All right, guys, back in a few. Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Let's take Kevin in New Jersey. What's up, Kevin? Hey, Buck. Uh, so I had a question about uh, what you think that we can do about liberals basically advancing their agenda, often through the root of lawbreaking, either by an individual, on an individual level, or on an institutional level. And I don't mean just Hillary Clinton, uh, because while you had, you know, that excellent discussion about how do we reach, uh, say, somebody in the Rust Belt, or how do we forward our agenda intellectually, liberals often don't even bother with that. They just change policy either by overwhelming the system or by just exhausting the public with a certain issue. Uh, So, for example, on an individual level, even though I'm not saying this was like a planned type of attack on the issue, for example, of drug legalization, they basically just, not not they specifically leftists, but people just kept on breaking the law repeatedly until police were finally forced to just incrementally allow it. Um, there's a lot of, there's, I feel like there's a lot of question in there, Kevin, and, and we're going into a hard break here. So let me say I'm going to put a pen in your question about how basically the left break rules to get what they want, and I will return to it. Kevin, thank you for the call. I'll get to it on the other side in a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, we're joined now by Crystal Wright. She is the author of the book Con Job, How Democrats Gave Us Crime, Sanctuary Cities, Abortion, Profiteering, and Racial Division. She is at GOP Black Chick on Twitter. Crystal, great to have you. 
Okay, thanks for having me, Buck. I should add to that and how uh, Hillary Clinton is going to win the 2016 election. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty confident of that one already? I, I, yeah. yeah, I just think... You're not alone. Today, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for diehard Trump supporters to deny the obvious is, um, I mean, you know, maybe the guy's going to, maybe, you know, Trump is going to have a metamorphosis uh, less than... What are we? Less than two weeks out? I don't know. I, I just I don't see it happening. But you, you sound you sound a little a little glum about the prospect, <laughs> if I may say. I think I'm just tired, like everybody. Um, I, I think I didn't realize how much life this was going to suck out of um, me. Just you know, watching this. I mean, I'm not involved with any campaign. Um, it's been a depressing election. Blogging. There's no, no question. It's been depressing. I mean, I think I think anybody. Yeah, would and say I think that. that. And I'm not. I would say that my support of Trump from the very beginning was very complicated and not, you know, I've been critical of some of the things he's done in his campaign, surely. Um, but to me, it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a sad reflection on where the party is, the Republican party and where the party has been really going for the last 15 years. Um, and I think we really have to ask ourselves if, if we're conservatives, you know, A, what does it say that he won the nomination? He did win. He won a plurality of votes or, you know, however you want to frame it. He won a, a lot of people voted for him. And if we had such a great field of dreams, right, of the 16 other people that he ran against, how come none of those people could pop up and, you know, what is it, cream rises to the top? I don't know. I'm just saying I think that the party – is very much broken, and he was kind of the sledgehammer in the cracking up of the party. Um, what would you say? What do you say to the people, opinion. Crystal, who who point out that the GOP, mm -hmm. other than the presidential race, is in the strongest position when you add in state legislatures, state houses, governorships? Uh, the, the they control the House and the Senate. I mean, they're in the strongest position they've been in since I forget what the year is. I think people say like nineteen twenty or something, way way back in the yeah. day. Well, there so, there are on the state level you have. Folks, like I think Bobby Jindal, even though he's not a governor anymore, right, um, he did some great things. And then, you know, the state turned over to another um, Nikki Haley. Uh, um, maybe I'm confusing the states here, but um, I'm sorry, New Orleans, and then we have Nikki Haley in, in South Carolina, uh, Louisiana, and then South Carolina. Those are governors doing some interesting things. You know, the state lets you point out all those. You know, we do have some strength, I think, on the state level. We also have some weakness in places like North Carolina with some of the things that we want to get caught up in. Uh, but I think it's we I think it's still I think on the national level in 2012, Buck, you will remember that when Mitt Romney lost, the RNC and the party said, okay, we are going to change. We're going to be more welcoming. We're going to be more inclusive. We're going to honor our women in the party, right? We're going to put them, we're going to pay attention to women. We're going to pay attention to minorities. And I'm not just talking blacks. I'm talking Hispanics, Asians. None of that happened. We had an autopsy report, right? Those were supposed to be things the party worked on, the messaging. And over and over again, when you look to Congress on the national level and the crop of people we have running for president, and I'm not saying that they weren't good men, right? But, but we did something. We keep saying we're going to do better in the way we talk and communicate our ideas, and we don't. We have the same ambassadors. We have older white men that we've seen cycle over and over again. Nothing wrong with older white men. I mean, I, I, I'm, um, you know, but 
there are a lot of other voices out there, and we're just we are not going to continue to win. We're going to continue to lose the White House with the same playbook we're running. And I would, I think it's going to eventually affect the state level. Um, well, Crystal, to be, to be fair, woman. didn't we have didn't we, we had a woman and and Nancy, a very accomplished woman and Nancy? I mean, sorry, no, gosh, not Nancy, not Nancy Pelosi. Pardon no, me. No. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was a Nick, slip. Uh, you mean Kathy? Um, she has a leadership position. Uh, now. <laughs> no, Kathy no. Rogers. No, no, no. I, I meant. Uh, I don't, I'm actually. This is embarrassing. I'm blanking on her. The, the woman from she ran Hewlett Packard. She was the CEO. Carla oh, yeah, Fiorina. Yeah. Thank you. There Carla we go. Carla Fiorina. Yeah. I got. No, well, I got she, my look, Fiorinas not, and my Pelosi's confused. Yeah. That's embarrassing. No, we had Carly Fiorina no, running. We had, a, we had Ted her. Cruz. We had Marco Rubio. Yeah. At least Marco Rubio speaks fluent Spanish. Uh, you know, we have two Cuban Americans. Yeah, but who, I don't know if it's a spark. Look, I'm not saying. They're great, but they're not ref- – our party – I'm not talking necessarily just about – yeah, we had an interesting group of people running, right? But they still weren't – I mean, Carly was great. She didn't go that far, right? Um, and that was for a variety of reasons, maybe. I liked her a lot. Um, I, I found her – you know, there's probably some adjustments she could make in her delivery of her message. But, why, yeah, we had some minorities running for uh, – president they they didn't make the cut um, they came close also, i mean you know, i mean if we're talking about yeah, rubio and, look, and cruz I'm talking more about why is it though that we have these iso they're still not the norm in the party you have a lot more when i look at the democrat party they run a lot more minorities and women to me they do on average and they've got more represented in an elected office than we do i mean in the senate we have um tim scott great man he, he's doing great things on um, prison reform, having discussions about poverty issues that affect blacks. He talks about coming up from poverty. I'd love to see more. I just don't know why is it we, we you know, we have these ice, we have Mia Love, right? But we don't have the numbers, and we're going to need more. And we also don't have in just voter ranks. We're not, you know, we're not appealing to, to the younger people. And I'm not talking about changing the message at all, because I think we have a great platform. I think it's the way we're, we we don't sell the great things about our party well, and we need more messengers. I feel like we just see the same old faces over and over again. So you think we so, need better yeah, messengers but the same message? Because, I mean, I, I worry that, for example, the millennials who are a constant, uh, constantly getting beaten up on by uh, curmudgeonly conservatives who are saying, why are all millennials? I mean, I'm technically like at the very old scale of a millennial. Um, but they say, why why are millennials who are – uh, going to be saddled with the debt of their ancestors, essentially, literally the debt of their ancestors because of you know Medicare and Medicaid and all the things that are happening with the, with the federal debt, uh, with the national debt. Why aren't they listening when we talk about smaller government? And it's because, well, they figure I'm going to pay for it either way. I might as well get as much as I can from the system that's making me pay into it. It's more rational than I think sometimes the conservative voice get, or the conservative message gives them uh, credit for and and I mean changing the the messenger I think it would be helpful clearly uh, but you would think that we had a couple of very good messengers on the presidential side and maybe they were just drowned out by Donald Trump but we weren't seeing big changes in for example the Latino community's sense of whether they'd vote Republican or Democrat based on the fact that we actually were running two Latinos for the presidency Did, didn't didn't make a dent I feel like the uh, the right, identity politics that messengers inherently get put into doesn't necessarily move the needle for the Republican or for the Republican Party. Well, and I think I think you make a great point, A, about the millennials and the disconnect between these national candidates and what's happening on a grassroots level. For example, I live in Washington, D.C., 
and the D- DC GOP here, we're you know I'm I'm involved in it. I write checks. I go to events, but we're not we're not really doing a good job of taking our message to young people outside of hey come to our meetings. Right? We're not going. We're not saying, for example, and I've I've recommended this to a lot of um, Republicans to grow the party on a on starting on a on a very localized level, a city level, a county level, suburbs. Right. We need to go to places where millennials are. We need to go to the college campuses. We need to work with the local clubs and give them ideas like do a happy hour, a meet. You know, people, college kids ask me all the time, Crystal, I believe in the conservative values. They're the best messengers of this, the millennial, you know, people who are millennials, not me talking about it. So what I say to them over and over again is, hey, just have a meet and greet. You guys can do meet and greets on college campuses. We used to do them for other stuff, right? And just say, if you're interested, we're going to talk to you about it's just a meet and greet. Maybe it's maybe it's at a pub, right? Just so people can ask questions and say, well, and actually debate the issues like you and I are, right? And not and we we can't be afraid to open our door on a very innovative way. And I think that goes back to like in D.C., we don't have the crop of young people coming into the party that we can cultivate to run for like the D.C. school board seat or even a D.C. council seat. We just aren't rolling up our sleeves and being innovative with how we're getting that message out. I mean, frankly, I think the D.C. GOP party, we should be on college campuses. We should be trying to feed pipelines to those kids who are going to, some of them, stay in Washington and maybe want to have an outlet for their activism. And then we could connect them, you know, with campaigns. I mean, this is just all top stuff, but I think the reason why there's this disconnect with like a Rubio or a Ted Cruz is because it's just not happening on the local level. The party still feels inaccessible to people, let's just say, in, you know, maybe I'm from Richmond, Virginia, right? I don't know what's going on with the party there, but but we need to make the party more accessible, whether it's in Poughkeepsie, New York, or, um, you know, Asheville, North Carolina. I don't, you know, I don't have answers, and we, we yeah, certainly can't. Uh, I know this right can now, sound a, a little glib, Crystal, but I know. think that one of the biggest advantages the Democratic Party has is the widespread perception among those who aren't necessarily in any way involved in issues or politics, but just the perception the Democratic Party is for the is for the nice, cool people. Um, that's exactly. and that's pervasive among young people. I mean, if you go on any college campus now, you know, you you ask people who think of themselves as very sort of fashionable and and hip. And I use words like hip and realize that I'm not hip, but you know what I'm saying, uh, that, you know, who, who do the cool kids vote for? They vote for Democrats. Uh, that's not true right, at every campus. It's not true everywhere. But that is a widespread sentiment. And it's an enormous advantage. You know, and, it, and then it even ties into like the celebrity, of course, the celebrity culture in Hollywood. And they all right. go for the Democratic Party as well. I don't know how to overcome that, but it is a giant uh, built in. Uh, baked into the cake uh, secret weapon the Democrats can, especially in national elections like the presidential election, can go to. Yeah, but I also think it's people like you, um, people like me. I mean, you know, it's ways to build um, surrogates and arsenals. I'm not talking about advocating for a candidate, right, but getting people like you on college campuses, just talking, giving kids ideas, opening up. I mean, these are things that you know, not to keep harping back on the RNC, but they have budget for stuff like this, especially during an election cycle. I would like them to see, and, I, and they're never going to do this. And, and you also have other groups, not just the RNC, but the RNC is the machine, right? They have they they have ties to the young Republicans. They certainly are plugged into the local party infrastructure, and there's things that they could be doing, just very basic like what we're talking about, mobilizing people that people will listen to, young people, going to, like, you know, historically back 
colleges and universities on a, in a real way, not taking older people, but saying, you know, hey, what, are, what about these young black Republicans? We, we, could, we could help, you know, sponsor an event. Again, it's just a, maybe it's a town hall. I don't know what it is, but it's just going to places where we normally aren't comfortable. Yeah, I will agree with you. The perception is that Democrats are cool because they have celebrities out there. They're inclusive. And when I was in college, I didn't really pay attention to any of this stuff. I was unaffiliated with any party. I knew certain things that made me tick and certain things that didn't make me tick. But when you're on a college campus, you're very impressionable about, oh, yeah, well, those are the cool kids. They go to the Democrat meetings. They do cool stuff, right? You're subject to this. But I don't think it's impossible for us to counter that narrative. I mean, um, and I think back to the millennials and the struggles of the millennials. Like you said, they're very much – the reason why Bernie Sanders resonated with millennials because, like you said, like, well, we're going to pay for all this crap anyway, right? And we're never, millennials now don't even think they're going to have – they don't necessarily want to own homes, right? They don't want to get saddled with debt. So they're like, well, maybe big government is the answer because be, it looks like I'm going to be paying for all this other stuff for the rest of my life anyway. I should get something out of it. We're not making the case that, hey, you can get – you can live like better if you know we don't have all this right. If the government was less intrusive and in taking less of your stuff, right? In the first you place, have more money to do what off. you want to do with it, Crystal. This you is know? a conversation that I'm really enjoying. We could have it. We should have it again, anyway. and we should continue to. But unfortunately, yes, we're, we're we're up against time here. Your book, which we didn't get to talk to you because we're having so much fun talking <laughs> okay. about politics and the election. Your book, which I recommend yeah. to everybody, is Con Job: How Democrats Gave Us Crime, Sanctuary Cities, Abortion, Profiteering, and Racial Division. Crystal Wright. Great to have you, madam. Thank you very much for joining. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, Team, we'll be back after the break. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. I said I would return to Kevin from New Jersey's question. It was a, a long and, and involved question. I think the, the gist of it was, uh, how do you handle uh, situations where the left cheats to get its way? Uh, and I, I think that's something that we see now playing out, in a sense, in the, in the election, right? That, this, that the rigged system, uh, which I know people don't like it necessarily when Trump refers to the rigged system because he perhaps is overexpansive in his definition of how it is rigged or he is... Uh, in some ways, reckless with how he talks about it being rigged. But there, there is a, a riggedness to the system. That is true. And then the question becomes, well, what do you do about it? Uh, do you adhere to your principles and do you uh, stick to, um, you know, stick to rule of law and stick to justice? And, or do you try to fight fire with fire? And then you get into, do you perhaps uh, prosecute in a Trump administration, if he were to win, would you would you really prosecute senior Clinton officials who had already been cleared by the DOJ? It's a very interesting question because that begins to feel. And keep in mind, the Obama administration threatened to prosecute uh, former CIA officials, and they put the DOJ on it. I mean, they they went through some motions there to placate the sort of anti anti really the anti American left. To call it the anti war left is a lie because they're not anti war; they're just anti America or really anti Republican in a sense. Um, but I don't have an answer. Um, I just know that there are two paths. The anything to win path, because they're doing anything to win, as we see with Hillary and all of her cronies and enablers, or stick to your principles and hope that the good guys win in the end. 
Uh, I certainly respect that and can understand why that would be the preferred approach. But then I also have to say, as we go into the third hour here, unfortunately, the good guys don't always win. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Let's take a call, because why not? Ryan in Colorado, what's up? What's shaking, Buck? Not much, man. Just chilling like a villain, although I'm a nice guy. (laughs) Right? So I was just going to share a thought. you know, with the political environment as it is, I've had a chance to sit in the belly of the beast, so to speak, with some of our social interactions and just keeping my mouth shut. I was a I was a cruise guy. I'm going to go ahead and pull the lever for Trump, but we'll see how that all turns out. But the hope, what I hear from them again and again, people on the left or who have kids or getting ready to go to college and that sort of thing, that hope or the lack thereof controls people and the left has successfully positioned so that intellectually and functionally hope is in the state and i believe it's a false hope but that's what's fueling the whole thing it's as simple as that so i was just going to share what i've heard out on the streets i hear you man well look the the government is the uh, the state a better way of putting it is the ultimate self-licking ice cream cone um it's the, the people inside have as their first priority in a sort of a status system, the expansion and propagation of that apparatus itself. So that's always so automatically once once the state reaches a certain size and depth and scope, it no longer exists to serve the people. It exists to serve itself. And then on top of that, there's no such thing as failure. If it doesn't if it doesn't do the job it's supposed to, it needs more money and resources. If it right. doesn't choose the right kind of jobs to do, it's the fault of the people that are uh, creating these agencies in the first place, right? I mean, the, the, the people, the citizenry. So g- government is, is not self-correcting. Uh, we have to be the, the correcting mechanism for it. And unfortunately, the government that we have now is in a place where it says, look, you can, you can either join in on this and try to get what you can for yourself from the government or be part of the opposition that gets crushed. Uh, and that's why I, I worry that after this election, there, what are we really going to be left to, to fight over at, at this point? I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, the next wave of illegal immigrants that are going to be legalized. We're going to be talking about uh, whether we go single payer or not in our health care system. I mean, how much is going to be the, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment? Where is where is your freedom going to be safe on what issues? Right. Um, I find this all rather depressing. I try to laugh about it with a sort of gallows humor as best as I can. But this is what I see coming down the road for us and and soon. Yes, the left will use it as a mandate. If Hillary does win, they will consider it a mandate. And the rules that we think we know will be thrown out the window. So the idea of repositioning and coming back and the 
the the talk that's going on. Well, intellectually, I get it. Uh, the the rules, the goalposts will change. The rules will change on the field, and we'll be playing a different game. So, yeah, at some point there has to be. I mean, I remember I asked Dinesh D'Souza about this yesterday. I said, "Do you think there'll be irreparable damage done?" And he, he understandably shied away from saying irreparable damage, but there must be such a thing, right? It must be possible to damage the Constitution and, and our form of government so deeply and so profoundly that it cannot be changed. Uh, and it must also be possible to change the electorate itself in such a way that we will never be the same American people that we had been in the past. I do believe that is the Democratic Party's plan, as we see with, with immigration. Uh, I do think that they... Look, America is the exception in, in terms of our specific culture. And I, I don't mean culture of, uh, you know, cheeseburgers and awesome movies and, and you know, whatever. You know, uh, yeah. baggy jeans and... Although we don't think oh, they're baggy, wow. but the rest of the world thinks that we're walking around wearing parachute pants all the time, or at least the European world does. Uh, you know, I'm talking about our political culture and the idea that the government is something that we sort of suffer through as a necessity, not as the basis for the state that allows us to live in it. You know, this is sort of a difference of philosophy. If you bring people from around the world who have that as their background and their and, and their baseline political philosophy, or they believe that, for example, there's no separation between a religious belief and, and the state itself, and therefore religion and the state are one and the same, and we don't have to name names. We all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, you, you start to change very dramatically the character of the country uh, such as it is right now. It's already happening. It's already changing. But Democrats don't really care because as long as the governing apparatus is vast and they fe- and they are in charge of it, uh, they'll handle what they have to as they have to. Uh, and the destruction of individual liberty and the rise of collectivism in its place is something they're they're perfectly happy to stomach on their way to perpetual power. So there's no easy way to say this stuff. It It is it is rough. Uh, <laughs> it is it is right. not good. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, history has proven that irreparable damage can take place. Uh, so to say that it can't is foolhardy. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. We, 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 we can do all of all of the what ifs uh, from our, even the our own history in this country. You know, we've made it to this point because we're a new nation uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things and in, in the sort of scope of history. We have a, a sense of our own inevitability and invincibility in America, and neither of those two things are really true. I mean, manifest destiny may, may keep us, may make us feel safe and warm at night, sort of like Edmund Burke lectures. Uh, but the reality is, is that we had plenty of close calls, and it was really just the, the genius of the founders mixed with the specific uh, cultural and and uh, moral attitudes of the American people that propelled us through very, very difficult, very precarious times. And this whole thing didn't have to end up this way and could be undone, I think, much more quickly than most Americans now realize. And I don't do doom and gloom rhetoric because I think that, one, it's just cheap and it's it's too easy and and it's almost always overstated. But I I do see some very real long term consequences from a another Clinton presidency, given the factors that I'm articulating. Mean, what is left? What are conservatives going to be if they overturn DCV Heller? So now you don't have an individual right to buy a gun and states can. Uh, essentially uh, regulate gun ownership out of existence state by state. If you have a president who says that abortion for all nine months at any point during those nine months, because it's a personal decision, is acceptable. And oh, by the way, your tax dollars are going to go towards funding that. 
if you have a First Amendment that no longer protects your right to say that you don't think certain people from certain backgrounds should be allowed into this country because they're a danger to the fabric of this country, whether it's jihadists or communists or anybody else, you know, go down the line. If private entities, I mean, there's just a story out today about how AT&T is actively colluding with the federal government to search through all kinds of information and data to bring leads to them. And they're selling this stuff to the federal government. I mean, this is in the Daily Beast today. Uh, And this isn't responding to requests for information. This is, hey, federal government, we're a huge corporation. We'd like to help you make we'd like to make a little money here. How about we'll search through the stuff that we have because we're a private company and we have all this information at our disposal uh, and, and we'll give it to you. Uh, that's not the government compelling it. That's a private entity saying that they're going to make a buck off of the information you're giving them that you think is private, but it's not. You know, what is left? That's what I start to get to. What is left? And people can say, oh, we'll have the House and the Senate. Yeah. Well, she'll have the veto pen. What are we going to get done in four years that bolsters uh, individual liberty, that makes you more able to start a business, that gives you greater control of your destiny, that allows you to, with greater ease and autonomy, feed your family, pay your mortgage, and live your life as you see fit. What will Hillary Clinton allow to happen, allow to pass, that will accomplish those things? I've got nothing. Yeah, and I would argue that at some point, sometimes, I would argue that it's not doom and gloom, that sometimes you just have to face reality and says, hey, by the skin of our teeth, by a thin thread, and deal with issues based on that. It's your only hope. Yeah, man. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. But at least, at least I got you and the rest of the team with me, Ryan. Thanks for calling yeah. in from uh, Colorado, my man. Shield tie. <clears throat> Look, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like to take a, a grim view of these things. Bums me out. And 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 I do hold out some hope. And maybe this is—I uh, wouldn't say it's naive because I, I think I have open eyes about this. But there's a part of me that does feel like maybe for all of his flaws and warts and everything else, maybe Donald Trump can at least forestall this. And maybe he can do better than that. I know what we get with Hillary. Um, and I, I would sort of wonder if any of you have any... What will Hillary do that you think will help the American people? I and mean, what will she do that would be a good idea? I actually can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, I, I think she'll, she, you know, look, she would repel an invasion of, if she were commander in chief, she'd repel an invasion of, uh, you know, the U.S. mainland or something. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't think she's completely insane uh, at all. I think she's completely ethically devoid of any moral compass whatsoever, but I don't think she's insane. So, yeah, I mean, there's some basic duties as commander in chief that she will fulfill, just as Obama has fulfilled duties as commander in chief that would be, um, that you'd have to say have been the right moves in certain in certain situations and at certain times. But in terms of making choices, making new decisions, I can't think of anything. Your taxes are going to go up. Your health care is going to get more expensive and crappier. Uh, your school system is going to be more inundated with people who, if you go to the public school system, uh, have probably come to the country illegally and may or may not have any ideological allegiance or even cultural adhesion, adhesion to uh, the, the community around it. Uh, you know, I, I don't see it. I, I don't see where we get anything good with a Hillary presidency, period. I just I, I can't. I wish I could think of a few things, you know, with a Gary Johnson presidency, for example, at least I feel like there are fewer uh, federal agencies that are uh, going to be, you know, kicking in doors and arresting people for unimportant stuff, ruining lives for unimportant stuff. 
you know, I think weed, weed would be legalized, which, you know, I agree with it. I don't think it's going to solve all of our problems or anything, but eh, probably a good move. Um, but maybe not. But there are some things about a Gary Johnson. He wouldn't sit around constantly moralizing when we know that he's the most corrupt piece of garbage in the universe, as as the Clintons do. Uh, so, you know, there's some good things I could see from a Gary Johnson presidency, even though I'm not somebody who's voting for Gary Johnson. Uh, there are some good things I could see from an Evan McMullen presidency, even though, you know, this is like the plot of a movie that not a lot of people are going to go see. A guy just decides to run for president out of nowhere and uh, maybe he wins a state. And, uh, you know, and I, I think Evan's a smart guy and I respect him. I don't I don't take anything away from him. It's just, you know, he's. He's a guy who showed who's shown up and said, hey, you know, I'm going to climb this mountain without any gear and without any help. And it's like never been done before. OK, well, maybe maybe you're the guy. Um, there's not a lot to be particularly positive about. Uh, and I but that said, throwing your hands up in despair is also not an option. Right. That's why I always say shields high. Some of you have been asking me about where it comes from. Just as a reminder, anyone who doesn't know, we used to talk about uh, we still talk sometimes about, you know, ancient uh, ancient warriors and ancient history. Um, one of the things in Sparta that was said, and Sparta is a very interesting place. I mean, it's really a state built on, we, if you watch 300, you think that it's a, a state built on six pack abs and a love of liberty. In reality, the Spartan warrior class was only able to exist because they had slave, there was a slave underclass and the Spartans also uh, effectively enslaved some of their neighboring sort of the neighboring city states to, you know, do their bidding and everything. So it's, yeah, um, not exactly. It, it, there's not a straight line between Leonidas and George Washington is what I'm trying to say. And not just because we don't think that George Washington had like a 16 pack of, of ab muscles. Um, but uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. They used to say, come back with your shielder on it, meaning come back as a victor or come back dead. Um, and. I always just say shields high, and that's kind of a reference to just being in the phalanx. You have to have your shield at a certain level in order to protect yourself and those next to you and those around you. Um, and, you know, if you were running, your shield would have to get, you know, you have to drop your shield down and you'd probably have to throw it. So we say shields high. Um, giving up is not an option is what I'm trying to say. So sometimes we just have to take it. Sometimes if you love this country, you care about what's happening, you care about your family, and the future of this nation and realize the impact that it will have on all of humanity. You've got to just say to yourself, got to stay in the fight. So here we are. We'll stay in the fight. Back in a few. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Those who are wondering, uh, I mentioned the sort of slave class in ancient Greece, uh, specific, uh, specifically the ones that uh, the Spartans used to sort of tend to the harvest and do chores and manual labor for them while they were just, you know, all hanging out in the agoge, learning how to fight and rar 300, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Helots, they're called Helots. Um, they were sort of a slave slash serf population, uh, more slave than serf. Uh, and Laconia and Messenia, 
were territories controlled by Sparta. And laconic is a word we get from Laconia. Laconic being sort of terse, short, maybe pithy. Um, but yeah, so the Spartans were uh, had a little slave empire going. I'm just saying. They also had allied city states with them too, and uh, but they weren't the they weren't they weren't running around with like cons- the constitution in one hand and a uh, spear in the other and yelling about how all men should be free. It's it's not it's not how they did it. Just just so we're all clear. Another side note: Bob Dylan. Did I ever talk about this? How he hasn't returned the phone calls from the Nobel Committee, and I just love it because. I think it's so funny that a bunch of Swedes were like, yeah, let's give the Nobel Prize for Literature to Bob Dylan. And he's just like, whatever, man. No, it like doesn't. They can't reach him. He doesn't care. <laughs> That's what they get for their ridiculous choice. Bob Dylan, Nobel Prize for Literature. You ridiculous. Kevin in Ohio, you can stop my Dylan bashing now. What's up? Hey, um, I just wanted to make a an 11th hour pitch to all the people who are never Trump, one more pitch so that maybe you can vote for Trump. Um, see, the way I see it is that if uh, if you're if you are against Trump, right, then there's only one one third party candidate who actually has a choice, has a chance of making any kind of difference, and that's of course Evan McMullen. The only way that he can make a difference is if Trump stops Hillary in uh, Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, and New Hampshire. I mean, he's probably not going to win all of those states, but Wisconsin, maybe New Hampshire's always been kind of close to thinking about going, leaning towards Republican. So, if anyone out there is thinking about is against Trump but is okay with McMullen, you got to vote for Trump to stop him, uh, to stop Hillary from winning. Because if if Hillary wins uh, Ohio or Florida, then she wins regardless of how many states, even uh, if McMullen won every other state. Or if Trump won every other state, you know what I mean? Yeah, if Hillary wins, Hillary wins. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it doesn't matter what Evan McMullen wins. Exactly. So if like so, so what I'm saying is that if you are, I mean, if you're pro-Trump, then obviously vote for Trump. But if you are never Trump, then you got to vote for Trump because that's the only way McMullen has any chance of winning. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. Okay, look, conservatives are by nature idealistic or, or ideological and individualistic. And I think that a lot of people and I respect this, they just they don't they they get a little they're They are uh, they bristle a bit. The fur stands up on the back of their necks. Not that you guys have fur on your necks. I'm just you know, you know what I mean? Um, a little bit. of fur. The, Yeah. I mean, the, but the point is, whenever someone tells them what to do, especially in politics, I feel like the conservative reaction is, you know, no one tells me what to do. I'm a you know. I, th- I think for myself on these things. So, well, I, I appreciate your pitch. I'm just saying I, I, I know that I try not to give too many pitches on why I think that Trump is the whatever, the lesser of two evils or maybe not so bad or whatever, but better than Hillary because people get mad at me. They're like, look, we can make our own decisions. And I, and I get that. But, Kevin, you're by all means welcome to uh, to give your, your point of this. You're, you're definitely <laughs> so, pulling the lever for Trump. Um, yeah, because, um, yeah, so part of what I'm trying to say is that we only got about a minute. chief. Go ahead. All right. What I'm trying to say is that the just more the moral standpoint of voting against Trump is that you can make a moral case. It's possible to make a moral case to vote for Trump in order to act against him because that's the only way that you can go against him. See what I'm saying? Hmm. Um, I'm just saying if there's anyone if there's anyone out there with still a slightly open mind, then consider that, please. We gotta stop Hillary. All right, Kevin in Ohio, you made your you made your case, my friend, and and in Ohio, nonetheless, where a vote actually matters. Thank you for calling in. John, how much time do I have here? I felt like I was... Oh, 30 seconds. Okay. 
Uh, I think we should have a very special guest joining us here in a few minutes. If we don't, we'll just talk about some other fun stuff. So there's that. Uh, if you want to call in, please do. 888-900-3393. And I'm going to do a Facebook Live today at 3 o'clock. Oh, what's up, Buck? That's right. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. It's going to happen. 3 p.m. Eastern. Join me. And we'll be back in a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by James O'Keefe. He is an award-winning journalist and writer. He is the founder. Uh, uh, he's the founder of Project Veritas and Project Veritas Action. Great to have you, James. Thanks for calling in. Hey, how are you today? And thank you for having me on your show. I'm good, thank you. Really appreciate you calling in. So, uh, you guys of Project Veritas have been kind of busy lately, finding out some very interesting stuff. We've mentioned a little bit, a little bit of it here on the show, uh, James. But by all means. Uh, tell us what's going on, and 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 you know, sort of you can start from the beginning of the recent Clinton stuff. What have you found out? Uh, these videos have become a political phenomenon. They've we've been. This is the third installment yesterday in a three-part series, exposing the dark backroom dealings of the Hillary Clinton campaign, the Democratic National Committee, and various consultant operatives who are doing things ranging from inciting violence at Trump rallies to uh, voter fraud conversations about how they would get away with busing people across state lines using fake documents to vote illegally. And then yesterday we exposed that it was Hillary's idea to to create a scenario where she would have people dressed up like Donald Duck. It's kind of a goofy thing. But this is Hillary's idea, says this man named Bob Kramer, high-level Democratic operative on hidden camera to to incite things at rallies by dressing up in a costume. These videos have caused a sensation. They were mentioned in the presidential debates. They're the number one as I speak. It's the number one trending video on YouTube worldwide, and it's caused uh, it's sort of been like an October surprise. Whereas WikiLeaks is focused on uh, emails from John Podesta and the like. This is videotaped conversations with operatives behind closed doors discussing. The things they can do, it's very disturbing. It's very graphic. There's language. They say things like, we don't care about the law. We want to win this mother effer. They say things like, we, we, we break the law and get away with it. And because the Republicans are too weak to do anything about it, it's just eye-opening revelations that change the way we're looking at our politics. And the media, of course, has been implicated in this story. And at first they refused to cover it. And now they're unwittingly covering it, trying to make it about me. Now, I'm sure, of course, that the usual defense mechanisms from the media, which is overwhelmingly ready for Hillary, ready, ready and, and willing to do whatever is necessary for Hillary. I'm sure they say, oh, well, one, this isn't representative. What are the con- you know representative of sort of the Democratic Party as a whole? And, and what are the connections that these individuals on video even have to the Hillary Clinton campaign or any senior level operatives? How do you answer that one, James? 
Well, the guy in the video, Bob Creamer, is the beating heart of the institutional left. He's no he's no low-level person. He's not just some bureaucrat. He has been to the White House 340 times. He's met with the president 47 times. He's been to the Oval Office. He's a community organizer from Chicago. He's friends with Michelle Obama. And by the way, he's married to a sitting U.S. congresswoman. This man is a big deal. And this whole story... Almost some have said it makes Watergate look like a third-rate shoplifting incident. This is someone who's very high up, very high up in the DNC, describing the things that they get away with and the things that Hillary Clinton has asked them to do. By the way, he says, quote, don't tell anybody. He didn't realize he was speaking into a hidden camera. This man is a big deal. He's a he's an important guy. And um, what's, what's been, what, And don't take my word for it. They let him go. They fired him. So if he did nothing wrong, why are they firing the guy? And and the reason they're doing it is because they're trying to wash their hands of something, and we have more tapes showing his direct ties to Hillary. Now, oh, we'll get to the more tapes in a second, uh, but, but put a pin in that, if you will, for just a minute. Uh, I also wanted to ask about whether you think that there's merit to the charges of illegal campaign coordination here. Because some of these groups that are outside of the campaign officially that can raise money in a different fashion than a political campaign can are not supposed to uh, coordinate, right? And this was what led to the John Doe investigations in Wisconsin with Scott Walker. They didn't find anything there. Do you think there's any any merit to those allegations of illegal campaign coordination with some of these outside groups? Absolutely, because if you look at these videos, it, it shows specifically the third one that there was a nonprofit organization coordinating with a Hillary campaign. So after Watergate, Congress passed the campaign coordination law. The proof of violation, there's basically three requirements. The first is that there's a payment by someone other than Hillary. In this case, it was this nonprofit group called Americans United for Change. And by the way, they fired one of their employees over this video. Number two, conduct, conduct, a campaign being involved. And in this case, Hillary Clinton is seen in the video, or Bob Creamer says that it was her idea to do this agitprop stuff at the protest. And number three, content. So what are they doing? Well, they're having people dress up in costumes and getting punched in the face. So the payment from the nonprofit uh, for the duck, based on their own admission, is a coordination. So it's obviously against the law, and the FEC has been made aware of it. Will anything happen? Listen, we live in a sort of banana republic these days where government agents and attorneys general and the Justice Department go after political enemies for political reasons. So the best I can do is bring these facts to light and put pressure on the American people to educate their fellow citizens to do something about it. Was uh, there any moment at which you were surprised when you were taping or making these videos at how brazen the Democrats actually are in in both uh, their sort of KGB-like propaganda efforts and manipulations and also the the pride that they take in it and the complete lack of any feeling of ethical constraints that they should have. Uh, does it shock me? Nothing shocks me anymore because I'm a shoe leather, hidden camera reporter. I, I, I go where the stories are. I, we live in a very corrupt society. We live in a, a terrible situation in our country where, as I just said, the media is complicit. The attorneys general are engaged in political attacks against people they don't like itself it's illegal we saw it with kamala harris in california against david delighton simply because she didn't like the fact that he was pro-life we live in a we live in strange times and 
my job is to open the eyes of the American people. I don't think the media can do it, not even because the media is political. It's because the media needs to have access to the Department of Justice. They need to have access to the Democratic National Committee. In fact, Buck, last week, something extraordinary happened. When, when I was breaking these videos, I was going to some of these organizations, these national media corporations, and I said, we want to break the story. They said, of course. And at the last minute, they spiked the story because they were getting phone calls from people high up, I'm assuming – whether they be the White House or uh, corporate lawyers for the people in the White House said, if you, if you break this story, we're going to revoke your FCC license. This is unbelievable. You can't even report facts. You can't, if you want to do a whole Woodward and Bernstein type thingy, you can't even do it these days because you will face retaliation from those in power. It's strong arm tactics. We've had to break these videos on social media, and they've had to trend. They've had to go viral. They've had to, it had to be a groundswell a movement, and I really believe this is a turning point in our nation's history because finally we can break news using those means and, and, and break through the media firewall. I see on TV, um, uh, I see talking heads and anchors saying things in response to these videos like uh, James O'Keefe is a criminal, um, he uh-huh. uh, dis- discredited journalists, highly edited videos like the Planned Parenthood videos by highly edited. I right. guess they just mean edited, which all videos are, as you and I know, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, they say these things. Do you get invited on ever to give your side no. or to defend yourself? Never. Never. I haven't been invited on one TV show. Not one. Not one single TV I mean, that's program. Just I've been talked about. I've been talked about on every TV. If you look at yeah. on television, I mean, Anderson Cooper was defending us. Chris Cuomo was defending us. We, we, it's not like everyone's attacking us. You have some. You're talking about like uh, on O'Reilly last night. There was this DNC operative who said, "I'm a twice convicted felon. I am not. I've never been convicted of a felony. I was once charged with a felony, and then they dismissed that charge. It turned out to be a bogus." political prosecution when when you're doing things i do when you're when you're taking on the machine the, the machine comes after you it's natural and if you, i wrote a whole book about it it's called breakthrough it's an interesting read it talks about what i've been through but of course they're going to come after me i mean for with crap and, and and spurious stuff but not once have i been invited to go on television and i think the reason they don't invite me on is because I'd probably humanize myself and people would realize there's some there's some merit to what's going on. Right. And, and when they say things like these videos are, are either faked out of context or highly edited, you'd be in a position to say, how? <laughs> yeah, I made I, the video. How, how are I they said, faked or highly edited? Please explain that. Because this is the comment that you hear among the, uh, the chattering classes, that somehow the video came. It's sort of like what they say about WikiLeaks, the WikiLeaks emails now, not to conflate what you're doing with what they do, but they say, well, you know, maybe the emails aren't real. Well, this is the one we're talking about real. It's just always another dodge, always another smokescreen. It's always deny, deny. It's very effective. They deny everything. They didn't. Hillary Clinton was asked about our videos in the presidential debates in front of 75 million people, and she did not even address it. I think that she knows. She, she knows she, she was involved in the Donald Duck thing. It's evident that she was, but they, they, they don't want to talk about it. They say, edit. I was on the red carpet at the debate. It was quite an extraordinary experience for me in front of 5,000 reporters and paparazzi and all these people, and none of them wanted to look me in the eye. You'd think they would at least say they all knew who I was. They, they, you could see them whispering, oh, it's O'Keefe. They didn't want to talk to me because I'm an existential – we, Project Veritas, are an existential threat 
to what they do, to their livelihoods. So finally, one reporter from like Media Matters, who, by the way, they're one of the people implicated in this expose, but more on that later. Media Matters guy, Sam Cedar, puts a microphone in the face and says, tell me about the editing. I said, Sam, name one edit. Name one single edit that you think was improper, and he couldn't do it. He's like, well, I don't have that in front of me. I'm like, you just said that I selectively edited the piece. All journalism is selectively edited. In fact, newspapers mince words and descriptions together to paint a specific portrait to advance their specific narrative, and they win awards for doing so. So you tell me what my edit is, because all video journalism has to be edited. I'm dealing with 100 hours of tape, and I'm telling the truth. I'm telling a story. So I have to protect my undercover people. I can't release videos of them looking into mirrors in bathrooms. That would, that would compromise them. I, I know that they're trying to spin it, but the good news is they fired the people. They haven't denied what the people said, and that's why we're winning. James, what's next from Project Veritas? What's next from your group in terms of uh, unearthing the truth about what's really going on with the Clinton campaign. What's next is we're going to drop another bomb tomorrow, and then we're going to drop another one after that. And we're going to keep dropping these videos until we actually get some, some honest reporting. Our video yesterday is the number one trending video on YouTube right now. We, don't, we, could, we could use the help of the George Stephanopoulos, but we don't need them anymore. You guys, the people listening to your show, are more powerful. And what you need to do is you need to take these videos and you need to you tweet them, Facebook them, et cetera, email them out to everyone you know and say, watch this video. It is a clear violation of campaign coordination law. It shows from the top down the incitement of violence and innocent Americans' protests. Watch this video and share this video and flood the inboxes of the journalists who will not cover this video. That is how we're going to make our society more ethical and transparent and take back our country. James O'Keefe, founder and president of Project Veritas and Project Veritas Action, also author of Breakthrough. You guys should all check out Project Veritas's videos. Another one coming tomorrow and one after that as well. James, really appreciate having you on, sir. Thanks for making the time and uh, good luck and good work. Thank you very much. Team, we'll be back right after this break. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Is the Buck Sexton Show. Well, it's not just Fordham University where they have a problem with uh, Halloween stuff. Tufts University, another hallowed institution coming up on All Hallows Eve. You see what I did there? Uh, they have been told that, or they're telling their students to make sure they don't wear any offensive Halloween costumes. This is from the collegefix.com. Members of Tufts University's Greek system have been told they could face serious disciplinary sanctions including a possible investigation by the campus police for wearing Halloween costumes that offend peers or make the campus community feel threatened or unsafe. So this is now, they're normalizing crazy now. They're normalizing the insanity of, oh, a Halloween costume is something that should be... Crim Look, if, if someone wears a Halloween costume that's in really, really bad taste, that's certainly possible. Criminal investigation, though, it, it, it is now a crime to wear a sort of unapproved uh, Halloween costume. That's that's where we're going as a country. We want to make these things not just disliked, but illegal. 
big problems with that in my mind. Very big problems indeed. Uh, but this is now widespread in campuses across the country. I love that they have to tell the Greek life people too. Oh, those fraternity brothers with their paddles and their goats and things. Um, they, they, they need to make sure they don't have any inappropriate costumes. I am supposed to go to a Halloween party this weekend. Um, I'm invited to one. I believe I'm going. Uh, I'm assuming I'm going. And uh, I will go as the one and only Ron Swanson, which basically means I'll be going as Buck Sexton with a big mustache. That's all that, that's all that needs to be done. That's the only switch that really needs to be made. So rep- representing the Swanson for Halloween. And, and uh, yeah, John just said, leave your latte at home. I'm going to remember that, John. I'm going to remember that. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's, it, should be a, it should be a fun weekend. I did go see Doggy Halloween, which is in New York. Uh, they have a contest for dogs dressed up in costumes. I, I went to the park, went for a walk, uh, and did see Doggy Halloween. It was kind of cold and wet, though, and so it wasn't really a very happy day for the dogs that were all dressed up. There were some cute costumes, though. So there's that. Uh, obviously, we'll be live again tomorrow and the rest of the week here in the Freedom Hut. Do me a favor, download the show. Download the podcast and be like, hey, I know one person that could really benefit from some Freedom Hut wisdom and send it to that person. We're going to go Facebook Live here at about 3 Eastern. I'll just have to set it up, but we'll do it from the Freedom Hut. So that'll be fun, everybody. Join me at Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton in just a few minutes. And in case you don't get to make that, I'll see you tomorrow, usual time, here in the Hut. Shields high. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.